1: This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode two hundred and forty-seven, and we are recording on September first. I'm Jen Northington. I'm here with Amanda Nelson, and we are coming to you from Book Riot and my calendar shock. How is it the first of September? Rabbit, rabbit, <laughs> rabbit, rabbit. Yeah, this is wild. I'm I mean, it'll so be like ready. what the third or fourth of September by the time y'all are listening to this. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I will probably still be in shock that it's September at that point.
0: <laughs> I just am so happy. Like I know that. It- it's still summer technically, it's still 90 degrees here. The kids are not going back to school physically, so like nothing has really changed, but it feels good. Like it's nice to have a new month. Like in my brain, summer mm. is over and now I can move on. I don't to what? Nothing. I'm still in this house. Like it's right. not, nothing has changed, but I don't care. I'm happy about it.
1: <laughs> I mean, perception is yeah. reality. So there you go. Yeah. I did buy a bag of maple pecan flavored coffee yeah, to like give myself some fall feelings. So yeah. That's where we're at. Mm. All right. All right. Let's talk about how this show works. Welcome. (laughs) If you are new, welcome. Uh, If you're returning, also welcome. We are, as I said at the top, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations, which means you can send in your reading recommendation question and we will do our best to find you your next great read. You can send those in either via email. It's getbooked at bookriot.com. Or you can drop them in the form that's at the bottom of the show notes on the site. Each episode has its own show notes post, and that's where that form lives. If you are looking for a response by a certain date, maybe it's like a birthday or travel or a holiday or something, Please put TIME-SENSITIVE, all caps, and then the date you're hoping to hear back by either in the subject line of the email or in the very first line of the form, and we will do our best. But if we're not going to get back to you by that date, we might shoot you an email response, so keep an eye out for those. Um, And, yeah, you can ask for a question for yourself, for a loved one, friend, family, book club, whatever. (laughs) We will take all of your questions. Uh, Let's see. Oh, right. So in the continuation of like the most feedback ever (laughs) from last week, uh, we have some more feedback here. uh, Two different ones for the person who was looking for books about exploring spirituality as an atheist. Abigail recommends The Power of Ritual by Casper Terquiel. And Michelle recommends Man Seeks God, My Flirtations with the Divine by Eric Weiner which is apparently an exploration of different faiths in an interesting and often humorous way. And then for Anna, who requested adult books with child characters, Kelsey is recommending Stephen King's Firestarter and The Gunslinger. All right. So let's see. I'm going to read our first question, and then we will take our first sponsor break, and we will get with the recommending. So our first question is from Maria, who says, I'm looking for a book for my mom. She's currently bored out of her mind, having watched every TV show and read every good book. I was hoping to surprise her with a book that catches her and makes her read for hours on end. She really enjoys books written by Latin American and African writers, especially if they dwell on those cultures. She also really enjoys morally ambiguous main characters or main characters that just straight up suck, (laughs) like Men Kunaima by Mario de Andrade. Uh, A list of authors she loves includes Mia Kuto, Machado de Assis, uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, Mario Vargas Loza, and also Dostoevsky. It's a very specific requirement, which is why I was hoping you could help. All right, let us take our sponsor break.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888-LOVE and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my All right, Amanda, what do you have for the mom who
1: has read everything and watched everything?
0: Your mom is like the most well-read person. Yeah, agree. <laughs> <laughs> very impressive and fancy. And she sounds like she would be very interesting to talk to. Okay, so I just picked an author, actually, not so much a book. And the author I picked was Clarice Lispector. Clarice Lispector is like a really famous Brazilian, she's like a Brazilian legend, really, Um, author who has written volumes upon volumes upon volumes of literary fiction and short stories. She's probably best known for her short stories. Some of her books, I would say, are maybe a little, like I, the last one I read by her was *Aqua Viva*, which is like a meditation on the artist's life that's a little like for somebody who just wants to read fiction. So I'm going to skip that. But if you wanted like a a chunkster to give her, I would go with The Complete Stories of Clarice Lispector. It's a good starting place. It just came out a couple of years ago. Oh, actually, yeah, in 2018, I'm pretty sure and from new directions it's translated by katrina dodson and it has i mean it's the complete stories right so it's like nine different collections that they've gathered together into this one big unbroken hefty tome of her short stories and there are so many uh, like completely morally ambiguous people in 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 these stories like everything from teenagers who are discovering their sexuality to like housewives who have decided that you know what this life is the worst and i'm not doing it anymore and like elderly characters who are trying to figure out what to do with themselves after their children have moved out. And it's very domestic, which I appreciate, but doesn't lack any drama because the domestic is often the most drama-filled, you know, situations that we're ever going to experience is our daily at-home lives with our friends and family. And so she's really, like, plumbing the depths of those relationships and situations, which I feel like... I don't know what where your mom is or like what her quarantine situation is like, but a really in-depth laser focused eye on the relationship of the people that you're very often stuck at home with seems like pretty timely for what's happening right now in most people's lives. So that's what I went with. I love this collection so much. It was a finalist for the Best Translated Book Award from the uh, BTBA when I was a judge for that award. And I was so happy that it made it that far. It's excellent. So that's the complete stories of Clarice Lispector, translated by Katrina Dodson.
1: I, I would, i just going to say up front, I feel super proud of my <laughs> picks because I feel like I've hit, I feel like I've hit the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. My pick is My Sister, the Serial Killer by Oyinkum Braithwaite. And I picked this because, first of all, it takes place in Nigeria. Second of all, it has a morally ambiguous main character. And third of all, it's just like a really good book. So it is about two sisters. The main character, Karede, is... The older sister, and she is interrupted at dinner one night because her little sister Ayula calls. And like Ayula tends to murder her boyfriends. Like, this is this is just a thing that happens. And she like will call up her big sister and be like, come help me dispose of the body. And you know, Corita is like, This is not great, but like you're my little sister and I love you, so I guess you know, we're gonna do this. And also, Ayula's like, Well, it's always in self-defense, so you know. This is what Coretta is dealing with. Mm. She works in a hospital as a nurse. And everything is like, you know, she's just doing the family first thing and dealing with her lethal little sister. But then uh, Ayula starts to date a doctor in the hospital who, like, Coretta sort of has feelings about. And she's like, oh, God, like, this I don't want to see him end up dead. But I also, she's my sister. Like, I always am looking out for her. So what do I do? And then it just sort of spirals out from there. And so this is very much like a sort of comic noir sister story that's also about, you know, gender dynamics and violence in relationships. And it's like got that like fascinating sort of complicated, really gray, moral, chewy stuff in it Mm -hmm. that it sounds like your mom loves. So I think this might be a home run. I hope it is. Again, that is My Sister the Serial Killer by Oyinka Braithwaite.
0: All right. Our next question is from Rebecca, who says, I recently came out as bisexual to my very conservative Lutheran parents. Neither responded how I hoped they would, but my dad was especially ready to tell me exactly why he thought the way I am and things I've done are wrong. It was a very frustrating conversation. I ended up telling my dad I would send him books because I was not emotionally ready to engage in an argument. Um, I'm hoping you could recommend me some books to send them that could help them gain some empathy and understanding of LGBTQIA plus matters or human sexuality in general. I plan to send them a big bookshop.com order and I already have How We Fight for Our Lives and In the Dreamhouse in my cart. So I think I'm looking for something a little more facty than memory. Bonus points if it directly addresses a Christian audience or debunks harmful Christian rhetoric around homosexuality and sexual purity. Okay, I'm gonna keep going. I picked The Bible's Yes to Same-Sex Marriage by Mark Ektemeyer. And I will say, like, I think this is a great pick for your parents, but it's still coming from a pretty conservative and, like, the Bible is true explicitly kind of perspective, which makes it good for conservative Lutheran parents, but maybe you don't want to read it yourself. Like, I don't know that it would be helpful or make you feel good about the things that your parents have in their brains that need to be undone. So, like, I would maybe skip it personally, but give it to them. So, um, Mark, the guy who wrote this book, in the early 2000s, realized, <laughs> realized that gay people are people. Hey, which is like a thing that right evangelicals tend to like not know so much. Um, And he was a very conservative, like if you were, if you've been in Christian circles for a while, you probably have heard his name, but he was a very conservative evangelical opponent of gay rights, like outspoken activist against legalization of gay marriage, all of that. And then he had this change of heart that's really kind of interesting because it was a biblical change of heart. Like he had this moment when he realized that white supremacists and neo-Nazis are using a particular kind of biblical criticism to cherry-pick verses that continue to support their white supremacy. And once he realized that he was using the same lens of critical theology to cherry-pick verses out of context to support his stance against homosexuality, he realized that he was doing it all wrong. Like, once you have aligned yourself with neo-Nazis, you're probably on the wrong side, right? Right. And so he went down this rabbit hole of theology and biblical, not literary criticism, but you know what I mean, a biblical criticism. I can't remember the name for it right now. Um, There's like an ism that, whatever. Anyway. And researched all the ways in which... Modern evangelicals and different versions of Christianity have taken uh, Bible verses out of their historical context and out of the context of what the author of the books purportedly, uh, the purported authors of the books actually meant in order to support a very modern agenda that has nothing to do with God. And again, all of these are, you know, he's coming at it from a very particular Christian perspective that you might not share, but since your parents do, I think that they, it speaks their language, you know what I mean? Like it's going to meet them where they are which sounds like is, is kind of what they need. So that's The Bible's Yes to Same-Sex Marriage by Mark Octemeyer.
1: Yeah, I had a little trouble finding like the one that I thought was right for your parents' both knowledge and openness level. So this might not be exactly right, but it is something. I picked This is a Book for Parents of Gay Kids by Danielle Owens-Reed, and this book really is more oriented towards parents of teenagers uh, who are coming out, but it is extremely, like, step-by-step, goes through, like... Coming out conversations, first reactions, then what happens? There's a whole section on religious beliefs and, like, how if you are, like, worried that your kid is going to hell, like, what do you do about that? Um, and it really spells out, like, just in the, like, most matter-of-fact language, like, approaches that you can use to come towards a loving and accepting relationship with your kid. Uh, And so, again, like, it's not exactly structured for uh, parents of adult children, but I think that, like, the language is is there, and it is, it sounds like your parents could use, like, a very basic, like, I don't want to say remedial, but, like, Mm -hmm. 101 Mm -hmm. approach to this topic, Um, and this is absolutely that. It is, it's like pretty gentle. um, It's pretty fact based. And it is very specifically from the perspective of parents, as opposed to like a lot of the books that you are sending them, which I definitely think you should still send, are from the perspective of the queer person in question. But it might be helpful for them to have like, you know, a parent focused read as well. And that's what this is. That's what this is. So, uh, yeah. So, And, and, like, they could cherry pick. They could just read certain questions. If they're not ready for it right off the bat, like, it could be there for them when they are. I don't know. It's an option. So, again, that is This is a Book for Parents of Gay Kids by Danielle Owens-Reed. All right. Our next question is from Georgia, who says, I like romance books, but so many of them seem to rely on the guy doing nice things for the love interest and other people and being super hot while he's doing it. Hmm. Or they've both been hurt before, so they're learning to trust, etc. But not so much on shared interests that, to me, seem like important markers of a successful relationship. I recently finished Long Division by Jane Berenson and loved how the quirky main character and her equally quirky best friend understood each other, laughed at the same things, and he paid attention to her also loved how in Beach Read by Emily Henry, the main characters are both writers, and that drives a lot of their relationship. Any recommendations? It doesn't have to be a romance, but a story with a romantic strong elements. I picked for you Waiting in the Wings by Tara Frejas, which is like a musical theater romance that I adore. It was so sweet and fun. And just like extremely enjoyable. And the main, there's like a little bit of like a love triangle situation. The main character, Erin, is 23 and she's like the leading lady. But even though she's always played like, you know, the one who gets the guy or who's in love, like she's never actually been in love herself and then she, in the course of doing this show, she, the leading man sparks her interest, but she also has a really close friend who maybe has feelings for her. And like, that's confusing. So it's about that dynamic. And it is a hundred percent about like, speaking a language with a person that they get and you get, and then, like, how does that unfold? And my other favorite thing about this, well, there's so many things I like about this romance, but one of my other favorite things about this is that there's, like, no, like, alpha hole in this. Mm-hmm. Like, every everybody's nice. Like, there's no <laughs> there's no big jerks, which I find very enjoyable. (laughs) Because it's just, you know, every now and then, like, I just want a little I just want people to be nice sometimes, especially right now. And like everybody in this is pretty nice. Like the conflicts are not that somebody's a jerk. It's just that like, some things just don't work out. So I I really love that. Also, it's set in the Philippines and like is very much about Filipino theater, which is very cool. Uh, So again, that's Waiting in the Wings by Tara Frejas.
0: Okay, I also picked a kind of like, thing about performance and art in that sort of way. I picked something to talk about by Mara Wilsner. um, Because when you said you didn't want to read about guys doing nice things and being super hot, I was like, well, how about one with no guys in it? Hey, no guys. Mm -hmm. There are no guys here. Um, So Joe and Emma are the couple here. And Joe is this like very powerful. She feels like a Shonda Rhimes level kind of power character in Hollywood. She's a showrunner and a writer and has just been given the opportunity to write and direct what is I think supposed to be like a James Bond, like the next movie in that kind of James Bondy sort of whatever universe, and so she's feeling a lot of pressure. Um, a lot of people don't think she's the right pick for this because she's a woman and she's a woman of color and like whatever. And so she goes to, I think it's the Golden Globes, and and does not want to take questions about it. Like, she's tired of talking about it. She's tired of defending herself about it. She just wants to work. So she brings her assistant, Emma, who is much younger than her. Emma's in her, I think, early to mid-20s. Joe is in her 40s. And so she brings her assistant and is like, your job here is to stop people from talking to me, which, like... Can I get an assistant whose job it is to stop people from talking to me? So (laughs) Amanda's life Right? Like just be the buffer. So her job is to be the buffer, to be Joe's buffer. So they go to this party. It's I don't remember if it's the Emmys or one of those big shows or award shows. And they actually have like a great time. Like Joe and Emma are laughing and telling each other jokes and had a a bunch of fun. And then the paparazzi took a bunch of pictures of it because of course they did. Um, And it ends up all over the gossip columns that they're dating, which they're very much not when the book starts. And they're both kind of upset about this because Emma does not want her career in Hollywood. She doesn't want it to look like she's getting what she's getting because she has a relationship with her boss who's very powerful. And Joe doesn't want to contribute to that in any way because Emma's very talented in her own right and was about to leave the assistant position and go um, off into something like a more powerful position in Hollywood anyway because she's very competent. So they like... Kabosh that right the problem is they do actually kind of like really like each other a little bit and would like like it to be true but we're just pretending we don't and this is really complicated and away it goes shenanigans ensue as they both try to deny their feelings for each other um, and then when they can't do that deny the reality of what's happening to the public in order to save both of their careers and the the book is very much about hollywood and it's got a lot of like insider hollywood baseball which i thought was really cool i don't know anything about how shows get made or run or Anything that happens before they magically show up on Netflix in front of me on my sofa. So all, the, all of this behind the scenes stuff, especially how people go from being personal assistants to directors and things like that to having like their own shows or being production people or all like that ladder, I didn't know anything about. So I thought that was really fascinating. And, and their relationship is very heavily built on their mutual interest in Hollywood and art and shows and TV and all of that. So that is Something to Talk About by Meryl Wilsner. All right, our next question is from Morgan, who says, I'm looking for books to get my best friend for her birthday. Uh, We have very different reading tastes, so books I think are good aren't necessarily things I think she'd like. Her favorite books are Eat, Pray, Love, and The Tattooist of Auschwitz. She loves books that are about traveling or an adventure, books with strong emotional themes where the characters go through a revelation of some sort, and usually books that end on hopeful note. English is not her first language, so I'm hesitant to get her anything where the language could be described as dense. All right, Jen, what you got?
1: I picked for your friend The Traveling Cat Chronicles by Hiro Arikawa, translated by Philip Gabriel. And this one is on my TBR. It's actually it's super highly recommended by several rioters. I went checking because I thought it looked perfect to me, um, but I wanted to double check. And it is a road trip novel about a guy and his cat. Like, first of all adorable. Like, I'm making heart eyes. You can't Mm -hmm. see me, but my eyes are hearts right now. (laughs) And they are basically going on a road trip through Japan during, like, the changing of the seasons. And they're visiting Satoru's old friends. And the cat is the narrator. And so, like, you're getting this, like, cat's opinions on (laughs) all of these people, including, like, somebody's got a dog. And so, you know, the cat has feelings about the dog. But there's, like, a point to this road trip that the cat doesn't know. And, you know, the, it eventually, you know, becomes revealed, I guess I will say. And there is, like, a lot of emotional weight to the book. The book is also very, like, straightforward reading-wise. It's not very complicated prose. The translation, I've been told, is like, reads really beautifully. And the cover is so sweet. And I just feel like this is the kind of emotional content that it seems like your friend leans towards. So, yeah, a really sort of just sweet and lovely read. Um, Again, that's The Traveling Cat Chronicles by Hiro Arikawa, translated by Philip Gabriel.
0: Okay, I picked From Scratch by Tembi Locke, who I just learned is, like, Attica Locke's sister? Yes! just...
1: Mind... Yeah, the day that I figured that out because of Instagram, my head
0: absolutely <laughs> exploded. I just can't. What? How? You know, these families that produce these uber talented people. I Whatever. That's fine. I need to join one of them. <laughs> how do I get in on that? Um, okay, anyway, so this is a memoir. Tembi Locke was a is a professional actress, but was in college the first time that she went to Florence and to, to Italy. And She's there, like, you know, doing the student thing. And she meets Saro, who's like this very, you know, hey, 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 Italian man uh, who lives in Florence. And they fall in love. And, you know, he, like, pursues her. Like, we're getting married. We're going to have a family. Like, you're the one for me, blah, 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 etc. And she's like, well, this is complicated because, like... Again, college student and an American and she is a black woman and his traditional family from Sicily doesn't like any of those things. None of those factors make them happy. And so um, they decide to do it anyway. So they move to Los Angeles. They get married, move to Los Angeles. Um, Both have really fulfilling careers. She becomes a pretty well-known actress. He is a chef. They adopt a baby girl and, like, have this family and then start to reconcile with his family in Sicily. Like, his parents start to come around, like, literally come from Sicily to L.A., which is, like, a whole hilarious story in and of itself because, like, they've never left their village. So getting on a plane and coming to Los Angeles is, like, this amazing culture shock for them. And then just as their family starts to kind of heal in that way, Saro, her husband, gets diagnosed with cancer. And he dies. He dies very early in the book. So, like, this is not, you know, you're not, like, going to sit with that forever. Um, So he dies. And she has... This child, I think her daughter is seven or eight at the point when her husband passes away and he leaves her some land in Sicily, like family house kind of a thing. And so she decides that she wants her co- her kid to stay connected to Saro's parents and that side of her uh, heritage and her family. So they go to Sicily every summer. And this entire memoir is about Tembi like becoming closer and closer with his family who speak like no English. So she learns Sicilian and teaches her child. They stay there all summer and she gets really ingratiated into this village. Like she becomes friends with everyone. She becomes very much like an insider. You know, that, that kind of small village thing where like when strangers come in, everyone just stares at them weird. She finds herself, I'm never forget this part where she like finds herself staring weird at like a tourist who's accidentally <laughs> wandered into their village. She's like, what are you doing here? You know, it's just hilarious because that person's like, you're an American. She's like, shut up, get out. <laughs> it's, it's so good. And, you know, it reminds me a lot of Eat, Pray, Love. In that, like, American woman goes to another country to find healing sort of a thing. But it is obviously different because she's finding healing in her family. Like, her- she has family there. And she's bringing her child there. And she's not traveling the world, wandering around until she finds herself. She, like, knows herself very much and had a life that she loved that was taken from her. As opposed to, like, Elizabeth Gilbert's story where she leaves it on purpose. Tembi never wanted to leave it, but she had no choice. And so now she's just trying to figure out what she wants to do and how, what kind of parent she wants to be. While she is in a beautiful Sicilian village as one does. So it's very hopeful, uh, even though it starts with like this, you know, big tragic event, it ends on a very hopeful note. She develops a really great relationship with her husband's parents, even though they were started off as like very difficult and racist and kind of the worst. And so it's like, it's just nice, like it's nice and heartwarming and the food is great. A lot of uh, some of the stuff is written in Italian, so you can get a little bit of that. And there are recipes, which is always nice. So that's From Scratch, A Memoir of Love, Sicily and Finding Home by Tembi Locke.
1: All right, let us take another sponsor break.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Kalianne Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Jolie and Tiffany D. Jackson. So unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money so what does she do she cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals but then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders and the truth selena has been denying can no longer be avoided There is evil lurking in the forest that surround St. Virgil. And to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Dass. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. Our next question is from Mallory, who says,
1: Help! I'll be teaching second grade this year, and I am looking for diverse chapter book read-alouds, not early chapter books that the kids can read independently. I have thankfully found plenty of those, but books that are a couple grade levels above. My ideal would be in the vein of Roll Dollar, Judy Bloom, stories that are interesting, introduce beautiful and sometimes challenging writing, and feature children of color. So, we have a great post, uh, by the way, of read aloud books for middle school that I'm going to leave you a link to in the show notes because there are a lot of more recommendations there that may help you out. My pick for you is The Season of Six Malone. By Kekla Magoon, which I adore. It's so sweet and fun. And I think it would make a great read aloud. And it is just, it's so fun. It's a summer story. Caleb Franklin and his brother Bobby are, they live in like a very small town in Indiana. And I think this takes place in like, the 50s or 60s, I want to say. It's something like that. Could be 70s. Anyway, it's slightly historical, but it's not. Nobody has a cell phone, I guess is what I'm saying. (laughs) But otherwise, it's like a pretty classic summer story. And they are getting into all kinds of trouble, including that they like attempt to trade They, in fact, succeed in trading their baby sister for a bag of fireworks, which (laughs) their parents are understandably not jazzed about. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So they have to, like, hide the fireworks. They're in trouble. In the course of this adventure, they meet their new neighbor, whose name is Styx, and he's, like, 16, and he's super cool, and he's like, oh, I'm going to introduce you to this, like, this cool thing called the Great Escalator Trade. We're going to like, you know, the reason you wanted the fireworks was so you could sell them to buy a scooter because they like they want to they're like in small town and they want to go explore the big world. So they're desperate to get a scooter, but they don't have the money. And Sticks is like, well, I'll show you how to like trade a small thing for a slightly bigger thing until eventually we'll get you to the scooter. And they're like, cool, awesome. Like this teenager is going to show us how to buy a scooter. And so they spend the whole summer like doing these wacky like tasks and trades with Sticks Styx. Over the course of the book, you start to, you as an adult, start to understand some things about what's going on here, what Sticks' home like, is like, and why uh, Caleb is feeling so very, a little bit like claustrophobic, and why his parents are so strict. And there's a lot of opportunities here to talk about bigger issues from the perspective of the main character who like understands a very limited slice of what's going on. So I feel like that is probably going to be very, it's the right level of understanding for your students, but it'll give you a sort of opening to talk about bigger issues of like civil rights and like adoption and things like that. It's just so good. Also, it's really, it's got so many funny moments and the main character is just a delight to read. So again, that's The Season of Sticks Malone by Kekla Magoon.
0: Alrighty, I picked Everlasting Nora by Marie Miranda Cruz, which takes place in Manila, in northern Manila, in the Philippines, and it's about a 12-year-old girl named Nora, who has a pretty normal life until her father dies, and then her family falls into poverty, they lose their home. Obviously, she has lost her father. They move in with her aunt, who is, like, very cruel and eventually runs her mother and Nora out of the house. And so they take up living in the North Manila Cemetery in the, um, like, tomb uh, where her father is buried. And that sounds... I know how it sounds, but that's pretty common. The North Manila Cemetery is the largest shanty in, um, in the Philippines. And so that's, like, not unheard of. And so she lives there with her mom, and they both work as laundresses like doing washing for people where like when they can get the work um nora is not going to school anymore because she can't afford it the school system there is not like it is here uh, with guaranteed public school for all kids and so they're working and then her mother does not come home one day and so she has to nora has to figure out you know she has to go to their job and earn money to eat but then also figure out where what happened to her mom her mom has a bit of a gambling problem and has been mi- and like stays missing for long enough that the community starts to get involved. And so this little girl just like becomes a detective. She commits a few petty crimes like breaking and entering, a minor breaking and entering in order to find her mother and she just becomes this like superhero trying to both survive and save her mom from whatever, you know, thing has befallen her that's caused her to go missing. I really love this book because the community aspect of it is so strong. Like the neighborhood where Nora, it's not Ignored that sh- that her living situation is strange, uh, especially for an American audience. But it's not fetishized either. Like these people who live here have very like lives that they enjoy. They go to jobs that they like and they have they craft their homes into comfortable living spaces for themselves. And they're just like normal you- human people trying to, you know make their lives better where they can, enjoy their days where they can. Work and rest where they can, uh, and so these people come together to help Nora find her mother and to help keep her going while this like weird situation is occurring, and to also help her contact her other relatives who live in the states or who live in other parts of the Philippines to get her out of living in this uh, tomb. So there's a lot going on, but it is fascinating and it's super fast paced and I think would be really, really great for a read aloud because you're just like in it, right? You know, like you cannot stop reading it and you want to know what happens, which is always so much fun when you've got kind of a captive audience that you want to keep captive and engaged. So that's Everlasting Nora by Marie Miranda Cruz.
1: Uh, before we move on, I feel like I didn't say out loud, so I just want to <laughs> say it really quickly, that um, Kegla Magoon is a Black American author and the characters in the season of Sticks Malone are, it's a Black family. So I didn't say that out loud. So now I'm saying it. That's
0: all. <laughs> All right, our next question is from Sophia, who says, I'm an avid reader and have been for 10 years, over 10 years. I went through a great period finding a lot of books that were deeply impacting me, but in the past year, I've struggled to find books with that deep emotional resonance. I love contemporary works about complicated women, fiction and nonfiction. Some of the books that I've loved in the past include Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff, both of Sally Rooney's books, though I preferred Conversations with Friends, The Wrong Way to Save Your Life, and The Rules Do Not Apply. I've been feeling uninspired with everything I've read lately, and I'm hoping to find something I can fall in love with and something I will think of often, which is true for all of the books I mentioned above. All right, Jen, what you got?
1: I picked Please Look After Mom by Shin Kyung-sook, translated by Chi Young Kim, and- it's been several years since I read this, so I apologize. I don't have exact trigger warnings for y'all. If I recall correctly, there is violence against women um, in various iterations. So just like a heads up on that. Um, And this, when I was, th- I was thinking about the books that you named and like the themes that you're talking about, and this book is sort of a multi-generational, complicated story about a uh, mother and daughter. I mean, you also get the husband and the son's perspective, but it really is a hundred percent about this mother and then her relationship with her children and her husband. And uh, the sort of instigating plot line is uh, Sonia is the mother, and she, when she's sixty nine, she is separated by crowds from her husband as they're getting ready to board the subway station in Seoul in Korea, and she vanishes and they can't find her. They, you know, put up missing posters. They fight about, you know, do they offer a reward? What picture do they use? Blah, blah, blah. And in the process of this, the family realizes, like, they don't have any recent photographs. And then they're like, I mean, do we even know her? Like, it's, it's very much about how women can be reduced to a role like mother and that that's all sometimes people see about them when in fact they have these you know rich inner lives and histories and you know their own traumas and griefs and dreams that may or may not have been realized and it's very much a book about like what women especially in previous generations have sacrificed what they have been through um, in their lives and how do we reckon with how we see our mothers and it's it's so tangly and it like gets dark in some places and it's it's very much a story about female like dismissal I guess is what I'm saying and I feel like that sort of tangly complicated, like, what does it mean to be a woman? How do other people see you? is a thread that runs through some of the other picks you loved. So I thought this one might do it for you as well. It's beautifully mm-hmm. written and beautifully translated. And I have thought about it regularly years after reading it. So I think that it could do that thing for you. So again, that's Please Look After Mom by Shin Kyung Suk, translated by Chi Young Kim.
0: All right. I picked The Vanishing Half by Brit Bennett, which has trigger warnings for domestic violence and racism. I read this a couple of weeks ago, and I've been thinking about it ever since, like ever since. And it has a bit of that Fates and Furies thing of, of two kind of dueling narratives on the same events. So you get two people's perspectives. So this is about twin sisters, the Vignes twins. Um, they're identical. They live in Louisiana, and they're growing up in mid-century... I think it's like the 50s, because that's the middle of the century. Good job, Amanda. They're growing up in mid-century in this very small community in Louisiana um, that's a small black community, but it is purposefully segregated by the people who live there to only include very light-skinned black people, people who could pass for white. And like they, they intermarry. Darker-skinned black people are not welcome to live there or to... Um, like have children with the people who live there. They're trying very hard to maintain this level of lightness in the community. And the, this is the, the neighborhood into which these twins are born. And they live there until they turn 16, and then they run off. They run away to New Orleans and decide they're going to make their own way. And one of the sisters marries pretty quickly like the, the darkest man she can find and has a child who is also very dark-skinned. The other sister goes the opposite way and decides that she's going to pass as white for the rest of her life. So she leaves her sister in New Orleans. They don't speak for decades. And she pretends to be white, marries a white man of like, I think he's in marketing. I don't remember, but he's like marries a wealthy white man, moves to the suburbs in California and then has to maintain that lie for her entire life. She has a daughter who is blonde And then her life is kind of turned upside down um, in her segregated neighborhood in California when a black family moves in and she has understandably very complicated feelings about it. She tries really hard to prevent them from moving in because she doesn't want them to notice her uh, and maybe reveal that they can tell that she's passing. And then she kind of goes the other way and starts befriending the wife. And it's just super complicated. Anyway, you follow these two characters over several decades as they have children and then their children meet. And then that, you know, makes things even more complicated for both of them. You know, one of their daughters is a very dark skinned and the other one is passing as white and has no idea that she isn't anything other than, you know, a white girl from California, a white blonde girl from California. And so there's a lot happening here. There's a lot of secrets. And that's where that Fates and Furies thing comes in. Like you you go back and forth between the perspective of the two sisters. um, And as they're reflecting on like their childhood events and different like their experiences with their mother and different things like that. But these are about very complicated women. Like one sister comes back to New Orleans or comes back to this little town where they grew up and then stays there for, you know, most of her life. And then the other one leaves and they never speak again for for decades and decades and decades and the choices it was really hard for me to not judge her for doing that for like abandoning her family especially her sister abandoning her in new orleans to go pretend to be white but also like I probably would have done the same thing if I could have you know like it's just one of those things that you'll that gets in your skin and you start thinking about I'm judging this fictional character for making this choice but it's one that I very likely would have made when presented with the option myself like do I face this violence for the rest of my life or do I have a comfortable life if I just tell this lie you know I don't know like that's hashtag complicated right and she handles it so well and you'll think about it forever so that's the vanishing half by Britt Bennett
1: All right. Our last question is from Sophia, who says, I am taking an online art history class on women artists. I'm interested in reading more about them. Fiction or nonfiction are both fine, but for fiction, I would prefer if it was based on a real painter. I have already read I Always Loved You based on Mary Cassatt and Diga, but prefer something more focused on the artist and not a couple. I'm just going to keep going. I th- was thinking that you might really enjoy the diary of Frida Kahlo, which is by her <laughs> because it's her diary. <laughs> and it is so stunning. Uh, it is just like because it's it's you know, it's Frida Kahlo. So she drew as well as wrote in her diary. And this is the years 1944 to 1945. And she is a fascinating person. I mean, she was married to Diego Rivera. They had, like, a kind of famously tumultuous marriage. She was also, like, deeply involved in politics and was really trailblazing in various ways. And you get, like, you get some of her relationships. You get some of her, you know, creative process. She's working out how she wants to, like, do some of her most famous pieces in here, which is awesome and yeah like you just get this really fascinating look into her personal life and there are there are great biographies of Kahlo but I just feel like you like why not hear it from her first Mm -hmm. right I just I don't know why not especially because it's such a stunning but it's beautiful so this is like I feel like oh it's just if you love art and you specifically are interested in more you know learning more about female artists like this is such a good thing to look at so again that is the diary of Frida Kahlo
0: I picked Blood Water Paint by Joy McCullough, which has trigger warnings for rape and torture this is a YA novel in verse, so it's poetry, um, told from the perspective of Artemisia Gentileschi, who is an amazing 17th century Roman painter. And she has, man, just got all the fa- just beautiful paintings. Like she was so talented and angry and you can see it and it's just violent and bleh. anyway, I love it. She she paints these religious scenes from this kind of proto-feminist perspective that I just fascinates me. Anyway, so she uh had her mother died when she was 12. And so she had to either she was given the option of either like going to work with her father who was also a well-known painter but whose name I don't remember and that says something, right, about Artemisia. Um and so <laughs> she could go like be an assistant in his studio and like grind paint and whatever, be an intern basically, or she could join a convent. And she decided to obviously go become a painter like go work for her father so she does that and she she is in his you know studio for years and years until she becomes 17 or 18 and then she has started becoming obviously a recognized talent like the older she gets and the more work she does for her dad the more other people start to realize like oh no this is she's her own you know kind of thing and then she starts to become mentored by one of her father's other associates and he rapes her And she decides to press charges, which in, you know, 1620 is like, I'm sorry, you're going to do who and the what now? Like, nobody wants her to do this. But her father encourages her. Her father is very much like, we're going to take this man to court. And so they do that. And she goes to court. She presses charges against this man. And he was already a known rapist and was suspected of having murdered his first wife. So the fact that it was already this difficult to get him to court, even though everyone knew that this is the kind of person he was, just goes to show you like how crappy it was at this time, at that time and kind of now, but also at that time. Um, And so she is put on trial, not him, her. She is put on trial to bring her accusations against this man. Um, She is literally tortured. And it's, it's not just torture, it's torture that's designed to, like, break her hands kind of, so that she won't be able to paint again if she's lying. Like, it's a very much like a witch duck sort of thing. Like, if you are lying, you die. If you aren't lying, like, st- it's still going to suck. But, like, she g- went into it knowing that this was going to happen to her, but she so much wanted to, like, have her voice heard. So, obviously, not an easy book to read, right? And the fact that this was YA was, like, shocking to me, but... It's not It's not easy. It's it's full of rage and, and bitterness and anger from the beginning, and it starts before she's raped. So, like, she's got stuff to say from the jump, and then you follow her through this whole ordeal. Um, and she went on to be a, like, super, super well-known painter, and this dude, who was also a well-known painter at the time, goes to jail, and, like, no one remembers his name now, so... It's just a journey, right? (laughs) Like, it is a journey. It's a journey. So I really recommend it. And then I also recommend going to look up all the paintings. She's got a painting of Judith uh, slaying Holofernes, I think is how you say his name. And it's just an angry lady cutting the head off a guy who tried to rape her. Like, it is amazing. And it's from the Bible. And it's just, you can feel it, you know, like that visceral. Anyway, I'll stop talking about it. So that's Bloodwater Paint (laughs) by Joy McCullough. (laughs) I feel
1: you though on yeah. all of the above. Yeah. I feel you. It's a lo- it's a lot. It's it's worth reading. It's a whole lot. Yeah. I, is that our show? That's that our is, show. That is. There we are. On that note. Always. I mean, it's so rare when we end on a happy note. It is. You're right. You're right. Oh, well, let's see. Thanks go out to our audio editor, Jen Zink, who makes us sound as good as possible all the time forever. Thank you, Jen. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. We super appreciate that. We also appreciate it when you leave ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you haven't done that already, please do. It helps other folks to find this show, and we do love to see the feedback. Thanks to our sponsors who help make the show possible. And in between shows, you can find us on social media. Amanda, where are you?
0: I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson.
1: I am also mostly on Instagram these days at IamJenIRL, and that is spelled I-A-M-J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And we will talk to you next time.